Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, contrary to the national trend of police officers not being charged for killing unarmed men, women, and children, a police officer has been charged in the shooting death of 17-year-old Antoine Rose Jr. in East Pittsburgh. We speak to the attorney for the teenager's family. We have a witness standing right there in the window shooting the video saying, I didn't hear him say one word. He just started shooting. And for 25 years, activists opposed to the death penalty have been holding an annual vigil and fast in front of the Supreme Court. Derek Jameson, he was on death row in Ohio for 20 years. A young black man, when he went in, had no knowledge that a crime had even taken place. It was a false identification, but he was on death row for 20 years. He watched 54 people that he uh, got to know while he was on death row that led off to their death. Um, his mother died while he was on death row. He couldn't even go to her funeral or anything like that. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On this week of the July 4th Independence Holiday, people here in D.C. and around the country continued protests over the Trump administration's immigration policies that are continuing to separate children from their parents. This is despite a June 27th ruling from a federal judge that separated children must be reunited with their parents by two weeks after that date. This week, another federal judge, James Bosberg, here in D.C., ruled that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, must follow its own rules and release asylum seekers on parole if they are not a flight risk or a danger to the community. The ruling was in response to a lawsuit, Damus versus Nielsen, filed in March by the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of a group of asylum seekers in U.S. custody. The lawsuit predates the Justice Department's zero-tolerance policy that all adults crossing the border without visas will be prosecuted. Chantel James attended Saturday's Families Belong Together rally in Lafayette Park in front of the White House and filed this report. On Saturday, a march of 30,000 convened in Lafayette Square, just outside the White House, to voice their emphatic opposition to Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy, which has seen more than 2,000 children separated from their parents and sparked mass outrage. The action was held concurrently with protests in many cities across the nation, but people from all over the country traveled for miles to be present here in D.C. alongside residents of the metro area. Sponsoring organizations included the Women's March and MoveOn.org. The rally's program featured speeches and performances by guests like Alicia Keys. We spoke to members of the crowd to get their perspectives. My name's John and hers is Anna. Okay, and you all come from Jacksonville, Florida? Yeah, Jacksonville, Florida. And so what was it that that moved you to come all the way up from Jacksonville, Florida to be here today? 
I just think this immigration thing was the last straw for us. We just feel we're tired of, of being silent and being just feel like we're being run over and not being represented by our government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just felt strongly about this. When it comes to children, they should be sacred. Right. So explain the signs that you guys have brought. Okay, well, this right here is, I love to read the Bible stories. And it says Jesus was a refugee. Yes. So the story is he was a refugee. So you guys believe that the U.S. should be a place where all refugees can come for asylum? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's what our country stands for. Mm -hmm. That's what the liberty of America stands for. Andrea, we're actually from New York. We mm -hmm. want to know, first, where are the children and why were they taken and when will they be reunited? We just don't feel this is fair. This is not right. People are leaving their country because they're scared and they're coming here seeking asylum and we don't give it to them. And we jail them, we cage them, we take their children, we put their children in cages. It's horrifying. My name is Eric Lynham. I live in Vienna, Virginia. I came out basically to support this protest about um, these missing children um, and that this illegal, what they so-called illegal immigration, this is a horrible policy that the Trump administration is uh, accomplishing. And I came basically to show solidarity for the parents who can't find their children who don't know where their children are. And it's shameful that this is happening in America. From Lafayette Square, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantel. Well, those working for a clean environment also enjoyed a mini victory on Thursday when Scott Pruitt resigned as head of the Environmental Protection Agency after months of ongoing scandals, the latest being his apparent effort to use his position to secure a high-paying job for his wife. While the forced resignation was considered a small victory, it was short-lived because Pruitt is being replaced by Andrew Wheeler, a former lobbyist for the coal industry and for a variety of other polluting corporations. And while the D.C. bureaucracy has not been the best steward for our natural resources, scores of young people interested in science and technology, including on-the-ground intern David Williams, attended the Congress of the National Academy of Future Scientists and Technologists, which ended in Boston on Sunday. The speaker who made the biggest impression on David was Sylvia Earle, marine biologist and first female chief scientist of the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. At 82 years of age, Earle is a National Geographic explorer in residence. David wrote this week that Earle inspired her to take care of the planet and protect the oceans. The on-the-ground team was also on hand at a recent D.C. Council hearing on protecting a neighborhood landmark and open space for community recreation. The Alexander Crummel School has been a historic landmark in the Ivy City community in Northeast D.C. since it was built in 1911. Since the property has been closed for more than 40 years, there has been many debates on what to do with the school. On Wednesday, June 27th, the D.C. Council held a hearing on how the school and the land around it will be used in a new development that will bring new condominium homes and retail spaces to the historic community. Romaine B. Thomas, 
former D.C. school principal and mother of former D.C. councilman Harry Thomas Jr. grew up in Ivy City and attended the Crummel School. She spoke at the hearing. I was born at home on Montella Avenue in Ward 5 in part of Ivy City, and I continued to live in the Woodridge, uh, Brooklyn community with the family home on Trinidad Avenue. I am pleased to appear before you this morning or as a supporter and friend of the Cromwell School of Friends Group, of which I am also a member. And this is a source of pride, and the source of pride is that I attended Cromwell School and returned as to teach at Cromwell School. As you know, this now historic site honors the life and legacy of Reverend Alexander Crummel. He was a leading abolitionist and champion for black lives. Along with many other people, I continue to be highly interested and passionate about the past, the present, and the future of the Crummel School site and property. I have participated in the struggle to reclaim Crummel School as a functional site a a vibrant, meaningful building, and beautiful site for the community and city to enjoy. From the current design, it appears to provide very limited use for outdoor recreation and may even limit the use by the Ivy City community. This was the major concern of the friends group and neighbors as well as families and children. This is the understanding that I have as of today. I urge you to give great consideration to the merits of this aspect of the proposal. Council members in attendance, including Mary Che and Kenya McDuffie, stated their interest in supporting a compromise reached between the community and Ivy City developers, which won the redevelopment contract. And finally, in culture and media, the first annual D.C. Pan-African Festival, Living the Nguzu Saba, is being held Saturday, July 7th, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at 1327 Rhode Island Avenue in Northeast D.C. More information is on the Facebook event page. In sports, two soccer superstars, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, have been eliminated from the World Cup happening in Russia. And also, the basketball superstar, LeBron James, is leaving the East Coast and heading to the Los Angeles Lakers. James, a four-time NBA MVP, announced Sunday night that he has agreed to a four-year contract with the Lakers. He has joined one of the league's most storied franchises. Many fans in D.C. and on the East Coast in general wanted James to stay in the East to maintain some balance of power, but no such luck. In the World Cup, Messi's Argentina and Ronaldo's Portugal are eliminated. The quarterfinals, underway as we go to broadcast, feature Uruguay, France, Brazil, Belgium, Sweden, England, Russia, and Croatia. And finally, fans of hip-hop superstar Drake are scooping up his new double album, Scorpion, which some critics say is bloated with the artist's usual amount of navel-gazing while still containing infectious beats and hooks. 
And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on Mexico and today's launch of Trump's new trade war. Stay with us. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Hey. Hey. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivera. And now we're turning to more international news with On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the professor, historian, and prolific author, Gerald Horn. And Gerald, the election of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador as Mexico's new president must still top the list for international headlines. So I want to know what you think about this, how huge this is. And what difference it can make as Mexico connects with both its southern neighbors, the rest of Latin America, and also its neighbors to the north, U.S. and Canada. This is a huge victory. It's a seismic shift. It's a political earthquake. It's a victory for Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, and CARICOM, the Caribbean nations. It will lead to Mexico tightening relations with China and Russia. It will lead to boost in pensions for the elderly in Mexico. It will lead to lowering or eliminating tuition for college students in Mexico. Keep in mind as well that AMLO, the name which, with which he is called, has also suggested that wages for Mexican workers need to, rate, need to rise so that the discrepancy between U.S. and Mexican labor in terms of wages will be reduced or eliminated, reducing the possibility that there will be runaway shops from the United States to Mexico. Now, if our organizations on this side of the border were up to speed, they would be sending delegations to meet with their counterparts in Mexico City sooner rather than later. I'm speaking, for example, of the Congressional Black Caucus, which should be organizing a delegation that would include the NAACP and other organizations to meet with our friends across the border. Uh, I would say the same for Pacifica, which probably needs to start collaborating more closely with its media counterparts south of the border. I would also give advice to AMLO, and I regret having to say this, but given the depth of the change that's taking place in Mexico, he would be well advised to contact our friends in Cuba with regard to tightening his own security. Now, AMLO also says that this transformation that just took place in July 2018 is the fourth major transformation in the history of Mexico. He speaks of the decade from 1810 to about 1820-21 when there was the struggle for independence from Mexico, which led directly to the abolition of slavery in Mexico, particularly under the leadership of a president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero who in turn began to attract enslaved Africans from Texas to flee to Mexico, which helped to exacerbate tensions with the United States, leading to a war with the United States uh, that led to Mexico losing a significant percentage of its territory. Then there was the Mexican Revolutionary Decade, 1910 to 1920, uh, which was pro-poor. Recall that that was during the time when the black heavyweight boxing champion from Galveston, Texas, Jack Johnson, exiled himself 
in Mexico City and sought to establish a base in Mexico through which he could lead a struggle against lynching and Jim Crow in this country. And then the late 1930s, when President Cardenas was elected and he nationalized oil, and that helped to set off developments that led to another flood of African-American migrants to Mexico City, including Elizabeth Catlett, who is probably our leading sculptress. Now, uh, AMLO is in office, or at least he'll be in office on December 1. And once again, uh, it's difficult to overestimate the consequences of this seismic shift, this political earthquake that just took place in Mexico. Well, as we go to broadcast, uh, Trump's trade war, especially with China, is supposed to be launched, uh, go into effect, and the world is watching for the impact. I did see, for example, that Iran says it will block the Strait of Hormuz if the U.S. tries to keep it from exporting oil, and the U.S. claims that it will keep that key waterway open, and it sounds like the that could turn into some type of military confrontation. Well, with regard to Iran, uh, the Trump team has suggested that by early November, it's expecting those countries that get oil from Iran to stop doing so. And if they don't, Mr. Trump has suggested that he will slap sanctions on those countries. And that could further worsen relations with China in particular, which is a major purchaser of Iranian oil. And likewise, with regard to this trade war, which will be commencing on July 6, Friday, China is a major target, along with the European Union, but also Mexico, Canada, and Japan. Now, Boris Johnson, the British Foreign Secretary, says that there's method in Mr. Trump's madness. And if you take that notion seriously, you may want to try to put this trade war in the context of a kind of grand strategy that the Trump team is developing. Uh, I would suggest that they're trying to convert Canada into a vassal state, a kind of puppet state. They would like to split the European Union, uh, cut a deal with France, which, by the way, according to the Guardian of London, is already on offer, uh, smash Germany with the aid of right-wing forces in Poland, neutralize Russia, hence the meeting with Putin in a few days, smash the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, because if Russia is neutralized, certainly there is little need for NATO, and even if it is not neutralized, there's little need for NATO. And then, with all of that under your belt, confront the People's Republic of China, which is seen as the big enchilada. Now, contrast that with Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, who would have pursued a more traditional grand strategy of uniting with the European Union and NATO to confront Russia and China. Now, from the viewpoint of U.S. imperialism, it's hard to say if the Clinton strategy or the Trump strategy would be more effective. From the point of view of the U.S. left, labor, and the oppressed, of course, both are disastrous. I would also say that Canada is particularly vulnerable, given the fact that it only has 10% of the U.S. population of about 340 million uh, Canada obviously should try to cut its own deal with Russia, but like the United States, it's trapped by the fact that in Canada there's this large population of hardcore anti-communist Eastern European descent, including the person who's in charge of Canadian foreign policy. I'm speaking of Christopher Freeland. Uh, Germany is particularly vulnerable. Uh, there are thousands of 
U.S. troops on German soil. It's surrounded by U.S. allies, not only Poland, uh, but the neo-fascists in Italy, not to mention the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. I should also mention in this context that part of the crisis in Germany that almost led to Chancellor Merkel being toppled this week has everything to do with the disastrous 2011 overthrow of the Gaddafi regime in Libya, which has turned Libya into a gateway for Africans trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe and then heading to Germany. The result of constant negotiations in the Merkel coalition has been a deal that will certainly lead to more racial profiling, not only of people crossing into Europe without papers, but I would say any dark-skinned person uh, who is trying to cross a European border. Now, I would also say that the political elites of both Canada and Germany, in some way they remind me of uh, communist parties during the era of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and the impending collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, in both cases, neither side can really believe what's going on. They can't believe what's happening. And I think there's a lesson for the U.S. left as well, which is that like a seesaw, when the left declines, as it has done since 1989, you can expect sooner rather than later for the right to rise, which is precisely the result in Washington and now in Europe. And finally, I don't want to forget Yemen being attacked by U.S.-backed Saudi forces. More than 100,000 people have died. More than 100,000 people have been displaced by the recent and current attack on the port city of Hodeidah. And millions are facing famine. Apparently, every few minutes, a child dies in Yemen, not least because of war and famine. And yet, when you examine the U.S. corporate media, what you see are stories about alleged missiles from Yemen flying into Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, which then gives sustenance to this idea that Washington should be intervening more forcefully with the Saudis to suppress those that they call the Houthis in Yemen. Well, we won't forget Yemen, the Congo, Gaza, or other parts of occupied Palestine, where Israel this week forcibly removed a village of Bedouins to make room for another Jewish-only settlement. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Capture the feeling I had at first Me 
meeting all my heroes like seeing how magic works The people I looked up to are going from bad to worse The actions out of character even when they rehearse Working in the land of the free, the home of the brave I gotta bring my brothers or else I feel out of place Breaking speed records on roads that these paved And they don't like that, it's written all on their face I don't know how I'ma make it out of here clean Can't even keep track of who plays for the other team Iconic duos ripping split at the seams Good hearted people are taking it to extremes Leaving me in limbo to question what I believe Leaving me to ask what's their motive in making peace Leaving me to not trust anybody I meet Leaving me to ask is there anybody like me This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And contrary to the disturbing national trend of police not being held accountable for killing unarmed men, women, and children, a police officer has been charged in the shooting death of 17-year-old Antoine Rose Jr. in East Pittsburgh. On the line is Fred Rabner, attorney for the teenager's family. Thank you for joining me today, Fred. I appreciate you having me. Well, as I just mentioned, we've all seen several cases around the country in recent years where officers have not faced any charges, have not been charged in what seem to be very blatant cases of police brutality, murder of unarmed men, women, and children. And and people, I think, have become somewhat numb to this. So tell me why you think that there's a difference uh, what the difference is in terms of what's happened in Pittsburgh with Michael Rosfeld being charged in the in the killing, in the murder of Antoine Rose. Wouldn't it be nice if our dialogue uh, didn't include that caveat that officers often aren't charged when it seems like they are caught on video perpetrating what seems to be very intentional criminal acts. But let me address the question that you asked. In this case, the officer from East Pittsburgh, Michael Roosevelt, was charged around nine or ten days after the incident. I have theorized that the reason I believe uh, that he has been charged with criminal homicide is based on multiple collective reasonings. And I, I think the first one that's worth mentioning is this was recorded on video. And I think uh, when you consider the fact that there was a videotape of this incident, a very vivid, uh, clear videotape from beginning to end uh, of the officer poised at the doorway of the vehicle that was stopped. Uh, Antoine Rose uh, II was in the passenger seat of that vehicle. Uh, while that officer was poised with his gun out, uh, giving uh, some type of command, which you can see the videotape that was captured, uh, because East Pittsburgh uh, somehow is in the Stone Ages and has no audio recording and or uh, video recording through the uh, body cams or the cruiser cams. They have no equipment whatsoever, but thankfully the officer was so belligerent in the manner in which he was talking to the motorist that the uh, young lady who was in the, do- in the window had started her videotape and captured this. But what you see when the video picks up as the officer standing poised and you see Antoine Rose II in a white T-shirt, running away from the officer, 
clearly out of uh, out of the direction, opposite direction where the officer is standing, with his back to the officer, in no threatening position. Uh, the officer is in no fear of any harm whatsoever to he or others. Uh, there's clearly nothing in uh, Antoine Rose's hands, and yet he lets off three shots in rapid succession, uh, striking him from behind and throwing him to the ground and killing him. So the first answer to the question is why this case resulted in the filing of criminal charges against Michael Rosefield. I think the first uh, reason is we have a video capturing the incident, so no one can deny it, sweep it under the rug, uh, rationalize it away, uh, or, or cloud the issue later uh, based on some conflicting testimony of what, what took place. So I wanted to follow up on the whole issue of the video. And I'm thinking about the case of Walter Scott in South Carolina, uh, shot to death by Michael Slager. And in that case, there was video taken by a bystander who captured Michael Slager basically shooting Walter Scott in the back several times. And despite this video evidence and charges being brought, there was a hung jury. There was one juror who just could not bring themselves to convict Michael Slager of killing, of shooting Walter Scott in the back. And there was a hung jury. And then after a while, um, months later, Slager was convicted of federal civil rights charges, which sent him to prison for Walter Scott's death. So this is a case where there was video, there were charges, but Based on the jury, uh, Michael Slager still was not convicted. So I want you to talk about how that kind of case can relate to, to the situation now in East Pittsburgh. Exactly. That, and, and you bring up a good point. And what we've said in our team, our legal team has said from the, from the beginning of hearing that these charges were filed was that this is just a first step. The fact that this officer is charged nine days after the incident is just a first step. I mean, in that case where Leon Ford was uh, paralyzed, he was charged in 36 hours, shackled to his bed and paralyzed, shackled to his bed and guarded by police within 36 hours. The first officer who responded to the scene to investigate the officer-involved shooting of him listed Leon Ford as the suspect within an hour of getting to the scene. So the fact that nine days took, took place is a demonstration that there's still some bias towards giving police the benefit of the doubt. But even though charges are filed. You bring up a great point. That's only the first mile in a marathon. Really, what you're faced with in the case that you brought to bear is a tainted jury pool that has inherent bias. So even though you think you're picking what seem to be, by the answers they're giving in the, in, in the, in the jury colloquy, they're giving seemingly uh, answers that show that they're fair and, uh, and unbiased. But in reality, we know there's an inherent bias in favor of police. But you bring up a great point. Here we are looking at clear facts where an individual is running away, in that case, not even quickly. He's, a no, he's of no harm to the officer, and the officer shoots him as if it's like a video game. And that's similar here, a similar fact pattern. And we have a lot of work to do. You know, my, my partner and I have talked about the fact that, uh, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We have to change something to get a fair jury. We have to get a change here to get a fair investigation in these types of cases. There needs to be stronger legislature uh, with respect to the investigative bodies that are assigned. For example, here, the county police are investigating 
uh, local officers. Now, county is different than East Pittsburgh or the city of Pittsburgh or all the different townships here. It's, it's a different agency, but they're, they're still closely entwined. We think that it would probably be more appropriate in the future, and we're looking at legislature in this regard. There's a local organization here called BPEP, and they're, they're, they've already submitted legislature, which the district attorney here of Allegheny County has agreed that he would, he would not contest, and that legislature would say that the attorney general's office would do the investigation in such uh, matters. So you get a statewide investigation instead of a local branch investigating people that they probably know. Uh, and that's a problem. And the other case I thought about, of course, was the case of Michael Brown and Ferguson. Because in that case, the police officer who was not actually interviewed for a long time or formally interviewed for a long time after Michael Brown was killed was able to kind of gather all these other extenuating circumstances that weren't really related to the moment that he killed Michael Brown. And so he was able to bring in the issue of, you know, had uh, Michael Brown stolen some cigars from a store and claim that that was the reason why he he stopped Michael Brown and the altercation led to Michael Brown's death. So similarly, as a jury or the public uh, learns more about the the car that Antoine Rose was in, that, you know, this car possibly being related to a drive-by shooting and how do how do you keep those types of incidents from being brought into the picture when they really had nothing to do with the moment that Antoine Rose was shot in the back and killed? You know, there's two sides to that. There's how much will it be used and how much should it be able to be used. So in reality, if you're looking at it from a criminal perspective, meaning the criminal charges filed against Michael Roosevelt, and if you, then the second way to look at it is in a civil matter, for uh, the wrongful death of Antoine Rose II based on uh, unreasonable use of force. So there's, that's a constitutional violation. So the one will be civil, one will be criminal. In a criminal arena, looking at it from the officer's defense of the case, you know, he's going to be able to introduce what the cause for the stop was, what was in his mindset as far as the information about the stop, because that's going to be relevant. Uh, there's something called an imperfect self-defense, and that's going to be relevant because they're probably going to try to say that even though he didn't see a weapon, in his mind he knew of this previous incident and he was heightened up and in a heightened state and that he was not, quote-unquote, intending to kill, not, didn't have a motive, if you will, to kill this individual, didn't develop one in that brief period of time. The reality that, that I think is the flip side of that coin is you're an officer, you have a, you have a gun, you know what is a permissive shoot, and you know it's not a permissive shoot based on the training, and you, you didn't even take a step towards this individual. You didn't yell, stop or I'll shoot. Instead, you sat there like you're in a shooting gallery and calmly let off three rounds in rapid succession into his back, uh, and also one, one at the back, one hit, his, uh, cheek, one hit his cheek or face, and the other one hit his elbow, I believe, but all from the rear. But the, the point being that uh, no matter what you thought, that's never appropriate. So um, that's the answer as far as the criminal. In civil, it's a little different. There's something called the totality of circumstances that we look at the snapshot of what the officer was aware of during the time that he chose to use deadly force. And one of the things in that is whether or not you gave a fair warning. 
And if you did give a fair warning, did you give the individual an opportunity to heed that fair warning before using deadly force? And if you did not do that, it's automatically an improper use of deadly force. So the jury would be charged on that aspect. And then also in a lot of these cases, in other jurisdictions, prosecutors, district attorneys have fallen to the whole strategy of sending the case to a grand jury. We learn in those cases that the prosecutors really didn't have to do that. They didn't have to send it to the grand jury. They could have brought charges themselves. And the grand jury was like uh, a method of basically taking the case out of their hands, basically, and putting it into another process that could be very nebulous where they wouldn't have to be accountable. They wouldn't have to take responsibility for actually prosecuting the case. In this case, the district attorney uh, announced uh, on a, in a press conference uh, the full reason why he filed charges, and he was very adamant uh, on some very important things, one of which was he said Antoine Rose did nothing wrong uh, that evening. He would not have been charged had he lived uh, for his behavior, that his hands were empty when he, when he ran. Uh, and earlier in the evening, the, the, in, the incident that preceded the stop, uh, the district attorney was clear about saying that he did not think that Antoine Rose the second did anything that he would have been criminally culpable for anyway. Uh, and, and that's important, uh, you know, just for, for court of public opinion also. And then the final thing I wanted to ask you about was the fact that Michael Rosfeld was released on $250,000 unsecured bail. Give us some insight into why that was. You know, what is unsecured bail and why would he have such a, a low bar to meet uh, for such a serious charge when, you know, most of the public thinks that if any of us, you know, shoot to death someone, then, you know, we would have face a much stiffer bail. Well, anytime you're charged with homicide, uh, there's usually in this county no bond. Uh, until you have a fact-finding hearing under which some facts are developed, uh, many, many lawyers will then make a motion for, to set a bond, uh, making an argument that uh, the chance of succeeding on first-degree homicide which, or felony homicide, both which, which are life in prison, uh, that happens often. But... To have an unsecured bond means that a magistrate, without a judge, without a hearing, that a magistrate issued a bond, which is essentially a piece of paper saying, if you sign your name here, uh, I will let you out without paying a dollar. Uh, and you won't pay a dollar, and you will be out of jail. And only, the only thing that could happen is if you didn't show up for court, then, I, then you, the, the county could sue out the $250,000 bond that you signed. Now, this same magistrate... You can't even have a traffic hearing unless you pay $50. So he didn't even set the bond as high as he would for a traffic violation. That's insulting. Uh, I, I'm disgusted by it. I, no one else understands it either. I don't, you know, I don't know how it happened, and I'm not going to surmise how it happened. I'm, I'm annoyed by it. I'm kind of uh, puzzled by it. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to focus on the actual uh, matter at hand, which is, the prosecution and securing a conviction, because in reality, uh, whether we like it or not, the, he, the, the fellow who's arrested has no prior record and uh, lives in the area, has ties in, in the area. I, I think the officer might have modified it so that he has an ankle bracelet now. I'm not sure. But, yeah, it is very rare 
it, it was disgusting to hear, and I don't, it's not my place. I have no power to do anything about it because it's not my litigation. It's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania through their district attorneys, and they would have to take exception with the bond uh, if, they, if they felt that it was appropriate. And there could be strategic reasons not to. I can't really discuss them now. Well, okay. And uh, in the meantime, does he, is he still on the force? Is he, is he getting paid? My understanding is, my understanding is on leave. I'm not sure whether it's unpaid or paid leave, uh, but we are, uh, we are uh, of the belief that he should be terminated. Not even, if not even for this incident, for them now knowing what his previous history was with the Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh police. Well, I want to thank Fred Rabner, attorney for the family of Antoine Rose Jr. I want to thank him for joining me today. The next steps in the case is that there will be a pre-trial hearing and then a trial date will be set. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. So rolling, not a stop. Watch, don't ever stop. Just the flow that got the block hot, got super hot. Ay, give me my respect. Give me my respect. I just took it left like on ambidex. I moved through London with the Euro steps. Got a sneaker deal and I ain't break a sweat. Catch me cause I'm gone. Out of them, gone. How I go from 6 to 23 like I'm LeBron. Serving up a pack. Serving up a pack. Pulling gimmicks cause they scared to rap ay. Funny how they shook, ay. got me shook Pulling back the curtain by myself, take a look ay. I'm a bar spitter, I'm a hard hitter Yeah, I'm light-skinned And now for our final segment For 25 years, activists opposed to the death penalty Have been holding an annual vigil and fast in front of the Supreme Court I spoke to folks from the organization's Death Penalty Action, Starving for Justice, and Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing, participating in the action. I'm Reverend, uh, Reverend Doctor, if you will, Jack Sullivan Jr. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, but I live now in Finley, Ohio, where I pastor First Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And tell me why you're out here today. You said that everybody out here has a story. Yes, well, 21 years ago, I lost my baby sister Jennifer to a homicide in Cleveland, a cold case. We don't know who killed her. And uh, conventional wisdom practiced by many would call for me to be out for revenge and retribution and find the person or people who did this to Jennifer and have them arrested and tried, convicted, and executed. Well, we are not anti-accountability, but we are anti-death penalty because death penalty is hollow. It it, uh, has no redemptive properties. It does not help us to grieve uh, or give us wholeness. Uh, does not restore us at all. It just continues that vicious cycle of death. And we all believe that there are better ways to address violent crime than uh, continuing violence, which is uh, the death penalty. Did, did your family have some sense of who might have done it? 
Well, we had the rumor from the streets, you know, but what the detective never really found anybody of substance. And so uh, uh, we, we, we like to think that the assailant uh, came looking for my sister's boyfriend, living boyfriend, but we don't really know. Right. You know, the streets are just violent, you know, and, and mm. people get killed all the time for for no reason. And uh, it's never a good reason anyway for people, people to be killed. Right. But right. nevertheless, people get gunned down all the time. And, and some of these cases don't get solved. And sadly, our case was not solved. Yeah. So I haven't... Um, has the death penalty been as much of a national issue um, as, as you would like it to be? Or? Well... The fact is, uh, death sentences have gone down. They decreased in number for the last several years. Uh, people still receive them, though. In fact, there are parts of the country where there are, people are more likely to get it than other parts of the country because certain prosecutors tend to go for uh, capital punishment. It shows they're tough on crime and so forth. And they, they, they use the guise of supporting the family members of those who have been murdered. But really, uh, I believe it's to support their case to be reelected. But it's, it's a big issue because, first of all, it's wrong. You know, it's wrong to kill people to show that killing is wrong. And then number two, it keeps victim uh, uh, relatives in limbo for sometimes a couple of decades while the appeal process goes on. And then millions of dollars are spent by states uh, that could be going to people who've lost loved ones to murder. Like in Ohio, my sister was killed 21 years ago. I think of all the millions of dollars spent in Ohio for capital cases and death row inmates since then. Well, people who have lost loved ones to murder could have used that money to go on with their lives, to pay for counseling, tuition, rent, mortgage payments. Right. Sometimes the breadwinner was the one that was killed, you know, and so there's not enough money in the family. Uh, and so that money could be used to help us to be, restore our lives, not to keep people in the court system suspended indefinitely and wasting the government's money, our taxpayer money. Right. It's better to put that money in a better place to help family members who've lost loved ones to murder and to prevent people from going down the pathway of crimes like uh, investing in Head Start, programs like that. Right. Yeah. My name is Bill Pelkey. I live in Anchorage, Alaska. This is my 25th fashion vigil that I've been to. I'm one of the co-founders of this event. And so this is uh, actually the 100th day that I've been here in front of the court. 25 years ago, uh, married a Jaeger, a murder victim family member, and Rick Halpern, probably one of the leading abolitionists in the country, and I got together and decided we wanted to do something to commemorate the Supreme Court decisions on the death penalty. And so uh, June 29th of 72 was the Furman decision, which emptied death row, and then the Greg decision on July 2nd of 76 is when the Supreme Court said it was all right to start executing again. Mm -hmm. And so we want to do something to uh, commemorate those dates. Mm -hmm. Was there a personal story that led you to be active in the issue? Yes. Uh, in 1985, uh, May 14th, uh, my grandmother was brutally murdered uh, by four teenage girls. A 15-year-old girl by the name of Paula Cooper was deemed to be the ringleader, and she was sentenced to die in an electric chair. At first, I supported the decision, but then I became convinced that that's not what my grandmother would have wanted that my grandmother would have, in fact, had love and compassion for this girl, for this girl's family. I felt she wanted someone in my family to have that same sort of uh, love and compassion. Uh, even though my Christian faith taught me that forgiveness was the right thing, uh, love and compassion was another story. 
but so convinced that she would want me to have that, uh, I actually begged my God in tears to give me love and compassion for Paula Cooper and her family and do that on behalf of my grandmother, and I prayed it in Jesus' name. And, um, and then I began to think, well, I could write this girl a letter, I could tell her about my grandmother, share my grandmother's faith. And I realized that I no longer want her to die, and I want to do whatever I could do to try to help her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually got involved in an international campaign to help get her off a of death row. Uh, in 1989, she was taken off a of death row, and her sentence was commuted to 60 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, once she got off a of death row, I thought, well, my job is done. I heard about a march that was taking place in uh, Florida in uh, 1990, and it was to ignite the spiritual consciousness of churches in America about the issue of the death penalty. I thought, well, there spiritual reasons why I was opposed to the death penalty. Uh, I wanted to go, so I was living in Indiana at the time. I filled my van up with gas and drove to, to Florida. And on that two-week march, with uh, I met Sister Helen Prejean, who uh, is one of the leading abolitionists in this country. Uh, her story is told in the movie Dead Man Walking. Uh, but it was on that march where I dedicated my life to the abolition of the death penalty. And um, I've been working against the death penalty ever since. I began an organization in uh, 1993 called the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing, which is led by murder victim family members mm-hmm. that are opposed to the death penalty. And we do speaking tours around the country and around the world, uh, sharing our stories. Uh, we talk about how the death penalty has nothing to do with the healing that a murder victim family member needs when a loved one's been killed, but how it just continues the cycle of violence. Uh, we promote forgiveness as a way to heal and restorative justice as a way to live. Uh, the journey has been to uh, over 40 states and over 20 countries. And as we do our speaking tours, we're joined by family members who have loved ones on death row. They share what it's like to have somebody they love sitting in the jail cell waiting for the day the state's going to kill them. Uh, we're joined by people who have had loved ones already executed. And we're also joined by what we call exonerees, as people that were sentenced to death for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, in the United States alone, since the death penalty was reinstituted uh, July 2nd uh, of 76, um, over 160 people uh, have been sentenced to death for crimes that they didn't commit. Fortunately, they were able to prove their innocence and were released before the state could kill them. But we still know there's many more people, innocent people, on death row. And as long as human beings decide who's going to live, and who's going to die, we're going to make mistakes. And when it comes to the death penalty, there's no room for mistakes. Uh, We're convinced the answer is love and compassion for all humanity. And if you have love and compassion for all humanity, you're not going to see anybody put into the death chamber and their life taken from them. It's impossible. I know every now and then I see a case where someone's being released from prison and they've been found innocent. And then invariably it's this older black man who's been in jail for sometimes decades. And, I mean, these stories crop up every few months. I mean, does your work that you do connect with some of those cases? Um, well, absolutely. In fact, um, I, I live in Alaska now, and Alaskans Against the Death Penalty, we're bringing up Derek Jameson uh, the end of this month for our, our annual fundraising event. He was on death row uh, in Ohio for 20 years. Uh, a young black man, when he went in, had no knowledge that a crime had even taken place. Uh, it was a false identification. But he was on death row for 20 years. He watched 54 people that he uh, got to know while he was on death row that led off to their death. Um, his mother died while he was on death row. He couldn't even go to her funeral or anything like that. But uh, there, uh, a lot of people, one of the people that's been coming here to the Fast Individual is Suji Graham. He was uh, uh, a, a young black man when he was uh, sentenced to death in California, finally able to prove his innocence. And so he travels with us and speaks out. And he's been speaking out here at the court. Mm-hmm. 
explain to those listening about restorative justice, what that means. Uh, I had a chance to speak to Fania Davis last year, and she does a lot of work with that in Oakland. But uh, from with like high school students and uh, young people who are being kind of funneled into the prison industrial complex, but from your vantage point, uh, how does restorative justice work? Well, there, there's retributive justice and there's restorative justice. Retributive justice is a getting getting even sort of a thing, and restorative justice is is trying to restore to where where we should be in life. Um, I visited with a girl that killed my grandmother eventually. It took eight years before they would allow us to visit, but I was able to uh, visit with her in prison. Uh, and I think that's one of the parts of restorative justice is being able to have communication with the person that has done you harm. It doesn't always require forgiveness, but often forgiveness comes comes with restorative justice. I'm a member of an organization called Restorative Justice International uh, run by a lady my name is Lisa Ray out of uh, well, Nevada now. But I'm very much a proponent of restorative justice. So can you tell us what that was like, visiting her? Yes. Um, we began to write uh, letters because they wouldn't allow us to visit. And it actually took eight years before I was able to visit with her the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was off death row by the time I was able to visit her. But when I visited with her, uh, I did not talk about the crime. Uh, but we had been corresponding for years, and so we talked about friends that we knew and had in common, that sort of thing. The thing that stuck out most of my mind after that first visit was a three-hour drive home where the word wonderful, wonderful, wonderful kept crossing my mind because I had just met this person who had done such a terrible thing to my grandmother, such a terrible thing to our family, and yet I didn't have the hate and the anger and the desire for revenge that would be so easy to have. But I had the kind of love for her that I believe God wants us to have for each of his creation. And to me, that was wonderful. Okay. Where did you visit her? Uh, in Indiana, um, at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. And I was living in Gary, Indiana at the time. And what year was that? Uh, the first time I visited her was Thanksgiving Day of 1994. Okay. Uh, the crime took place in 1985. Uh, but I started to try to visit her after November 2nd of 1986, where I had begged God to give me love and compassion. Okay. So this action, uh, the 25th anniversary, what do you what do you hope comes out of it? Well, we're uh, there's, there's a lot of people uh, that are here for the first time, and especially young people. And it takes for a movement to be successful, it's got to have the young people. So I'm excited to see some of the young people uh, that are here and, and are actually even fasting uh, for this for the cause. I think it'll inspire them to go back to their states and to to do more work, uh, to be more involved. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Fred Brabner. And thanks to Chantel James for her reporting. And thanks to our summer interns, Nicholas Aponza, Shailene Parham, Donald Postel, Ezra Reed, Sherelle Walters, and David Williams. The music we play this hour included cuts from Drake's new album, Scorpion. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.